electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Bring in show music, please. This is Squawk Pod, and I'm CNBC producer Cameron Costa. Today on our podcast, we're tracking cryptocurrency donations to terrorist group Hamas with blockchain and terror financing expert Ari Redboard. We're going to continue to see Hamas and other organizations attempt to raise funds in crypto because they will attempt to raise funds in absolutely any way they can. The role crypto plays in terrorism and in war, and how blockchain's efficiency is helping terrorists, but it's also helping law enforcement track them. It's one thing to raise funds in crypto. It's another to be able to use them to buy weapons, to off-ramp those funds. And that's really where we need to ensure that regulation exists. And a renowned UPenn graduate is urging fellow alumni to halt donations to the university. At issue, a Palestinian literary festival and what he calls a failure to forcefully condemn anti-Semitism. Apollo CEO Mark Rowan. This is not about a political solution or disagreements over how Israel has treated Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza. This is a group that is a terrorist group. Those conversations plus Birkenstock, not quite a shoe-in to the public markets. And lies, bribes, and relationships. CNBC's Kate Rooney on the trial of Sam Bankman-Fried. You were the CEO. How did you not know about this and that Sam was so busy doing things like TV appearances? He was doing conferences. He was just the figurehead. It's Thursday, October 12th, 2023, and Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand back you by in three, two, one. Cue it, please. Good morning. Welcome to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. We're live from the Nasdaq market site in Times Square. I'm Becky Quick along with Andrew Ross Sorkin. Joe is off today. We've now seen four days in a row. Before we get into the business headlines on the podcast today, a recap of one of the biggest ones, the consumer price index data. The CPI increased 0.4% from last month and 3.7% from a year ago. That's a little more than expected. Core CPI, which strips out the volatile food and energy prices, came in in line with expectations and pretty much in line with the data from August. It's a sign that efforts to bring price pressures down might be slowing in their progress. Now, policymakers watch this metric closely to get a read on U.S. inflation. The Federal Reserve is committed to bringing inflation down still. But as we saw in their meeting minutes released this week, Fed officials are split on whether more interest rate hikes will do the trick. Okay, you're caught up on that. Let's get back to the rest of today's headlines. Now to the latest headlines out of Israel. The country's Minister of Energy and Infrastructure saying overnight that the siege of Gaza will not be lifted until the country's hostages, which were taken by Hamas, are returned home. In the meantime, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken has arrived in Tel Aviv. He's meeting today with Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Separately, the Palestinian Liberation Organization posted on X that Blinken will meet with Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas tomorrow. That's all coming up. uh, And uh, 
The expectation is that any invasion of Gaza would not happen while Antony Blinken is there. Right. But that's uh, the next six to eight hours that he's anticipated to be there. Meantime, uh, White House officials saying they are leaving open the possibility of refreezing $6 billion in Iranian oil money that was released as part of a prisoner swap that follows growing backlash from Iran's support of Hamas, which carried out Saturday's brutal terror attacks against Israel. A source telling NBC News yesterday that U.S. spy agencies have obtained exquisite intelligence, they say, that shows Iranian leaders were surprised by the attack. A second source describing intelligence as good evidence. The intel says that the Iranian officials were high enough that they would usually be informed about Tehran's support before an attack. Now, White House officials have said there's no evidence that Iran directed or ordered the assault, but National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan has said that Iran was complicit because it had armed and financed and trained Hamas militants for decades. So that debate continuing uh, this morning, uh, but some powerful words from, from, from U.S. officials, at least on this issue. And I know it sort of pushes back against some of the others, but we'll, we'll see what that ultimately means. I mean, means. this is a pretty important point, though. Yes, and this is what the is point. determined not only by the U.S., but specifically by Netanyahu right. and what they decide, they see what this will determine uh, whether the war expands in ways that just draws in more and more. Right. Uh, meantime, Mark Rowan, the CEO of Apollo Global Management and a graduate of the University of Pennsylvania and chairman of the Board of Advisors of Penn's Wharton Business School, is now urging alumni to halt donations to that school until two key leaders resign. This is a fascinating thing to watch and play out. At issue, the university hosted an event called the Palestine Writers Literature Festival, which Rowan said featured well-known anti-Semites and uh, fomenters of hate and racism. We had covered a little bit of this when it had actually happened. Rowan said the university president failed to condemn the rhetoric from that event. In a letter, Rowan says he's calling on donors to close their checkbooks until President Elizabeth McGill and the board trustee chair, Scott Bach, stepped down. He says he saw sickening parallels between events at Penn and Harvard, uh, where some students blamed Israel after Hamas terrorists killed uh, more than 1,000 people last weekend. The university didn't respond to Rome's demand, but addressed the controversy over the festival in a statement last month. Now, this is what it said last month. We unequivocally and emphatically condemn anti-Semitism as antithetical to our institutional values as a university. We also fiercely support the free exchange of ideas as central to our educational mission. This includes the expression of views that are controversial, even those that are incompatible with our institutional values. Mark Rowan will join us at this table to talk about the letter that he sent uh, and the efforts that he is making uh, at a university. But, you know, we're seeing this play out at, at universities across the country, Harvard in particular. Bill Ackman, by the way, out with now another letter overnight. Yes, Hopefully we'll that. talk about it in just a little bit. Um, given uh, some of the, the rhetoric, I should say some of, the disgraceful rhetoric uh, and despicable rhetoric and just terrible, I mean, the whole thing is diabolical to, to think that some of these organizations were signing these letters. But I think in, this, in, in a similar vein, Mark Rowan is looking at this situation, but to see somebody who's a trustee who's a major benefactor of a university say, not only am I not giving you any money, you know, Steve Schwartzman, all of the people who've been giving, you know, uh, pen money for years, stop giving them money. That's a very powerful message to hear. Uh, Scott Bach, by the way, a longtime uh, Wall Streeter uh, for, for many, many years um, on, on that board. So we'll, uh, we'll see, but you're seeing, uh, you're seeing the battle playing out. Bill Ackman, taking just not about the organization signing on to these letters, the members, the students. He's gone after members. the individuals. He yeah, said, he said you, need to to these. you need to condemn this. First of all, first he wanted them to be 
identified. And, and to make sure he said that he, he doesn't and want to no hire one them. else ever hires. Right. Them. Right. Well, look, the most powerful incentive that you can give a, a student is to say, I mean, the entire network of Harvard is about, in large part, it's about going to find a job. If there are people who are going to say, I'm not going to hire you because you're part of this organization, and you didn't step out and say, that was a mistake immediately. That may very well be a reasonable thing. Larry similarly, by the way, if you're a university and you, you need benefactors to continue to, to, to fund your budget and you have people on the board who are allowing these types of things to take place at the university, that's an interesting thing. Larry Summers, the former president of Harvard, he, who, who kicked all of this off, also right. spoke out on this. He said he's not stepping back from anything he said about the, the university and right. the administration, um, not condemning this enough. Right. He said the kids, made, he thought the kids, some of the kids made a mistake. Yeah, and, and may not have known exactly right. what was going on. But I think so the, the point that Bill Ackman made, uh, where, and I'm probably closer to, to the Ackman side of this personally, the way I feel about it, than where La Larry said they made a mistake, just sort of let it go. I think in the Ackman's argument is, if you made a mistake, raise your hand, say, I made a mistake. Let everybody know that you made a mistake. You know, there's got to be some accountability for this stuff. You can't just say, I, I'm a kid, I made a mistake, and I, and I'm not, but I'm not going to say anything about it. Well, I saw people say, you know, Harvard Law students who say they didn't read what they were signing should give you concerns about the lawyers that are coming out. You know, all of it. All of it. You should. Things, yeah. Shares of Birkenstock sliding more than 12% in their debut on the New York Stock Exchange. The IPO priced at $46 per share, opened at $41, and then closed at $40.20, giving it a market value of about $7.5 billion. Not that shabby, but right now we want to get a closer look at one of the big backers of the German footwear company, the king of luxury, LVMH founder Bernard Arnault. Robert Frank joins us with that story. What's going on? Well, Andrew, not a great day, as you mentioned, for Birkenstock right. IPO. That stumbled on the open down 13% from its opening price. But the world's second richest man is still bullish on this company. Bernard Arnault, the founder and chairman of LVMH, which owns a stake in Birkenstock through two entities. LVMH is a partner in L. Catterton. They're the uh, private equity firm that acquired a majority of Birkenstock two years ago. His family office, called Agash, was also part of the buying group. They paid... $4.8 billion at the time. Yesterday after the close, it was valued at, at, Andrew just mentioned, over $7 billion. So they nearly doubled their investment in just two years. L. Catterton still owns about 80% of the company. And Bernard Arnault, well, he is doubling down on Birkenstock. According to SEC filings, Agash planned to buy $325 million of stock at the uh, IPO right at the offering price. And Arnaud's son, Alexander Arnaud, he's the vice president of Tiffany, he's now going to be on the Birkenstock board. So why is the man better known for selling high heels, betting on sandals? Well, when he acquired the company, he said, quote, Birkenstock has grown to become one of the few iconic brands in the footwear industry. We truly appreciate brands with this long heritage. They go back to the 1700s, so that is a long heritage. Arnaud is also expected to expand the market into China and other countries and to attract a lot of celebrity spokespeople. So when we see Beyonce and Jay-Z with Birkenstocks, then we'll know that he's made Birkenstocks it. have been around since the 1700s? 1700s, they were first I mean, they uh, look like it, Germany. but I didn't know that was actually true. <laughs> yeah, they look like it. And they're still comfortable after all that time. You think with all this great technology between then and now, and he's wow. still like a classic. And what's interesting is 
Birkenstock was a family-owned company for all those years, and basically it was sold because the next generation didn't want to own it anymore. Arnault has made a career out of buying companies that have succession issues. Agash, his family office, no one can sell any shares in that family office controlling entity for 30 years. So he's learned wow. his lesson from all these brands that he's acquired right. because the next generation doesn't want them. Right. Robert Frank, thank you, sir. Thank what, you what you got on your feet there? Uh, standard dress yeah. shoes. Okay, yeah. thanks. Another day of testimony from the highest ranking executive in Sam Bankman Fried's inner circle, Caroline Ellison, and she's headed back to the stand today. Uh, Kate Rooney joins us more with more on all of it. I was down there with you. I saw it. It was it was like the Super Bowl of this case. It really was, Andrew. Huge day. It was fascinating. We got a lot from that testimony. Caroline Ellison had been pretty calm and collected throughout her two-day testimony. Before that, yesterday though, really was her breaking point. She broke down crying on the stand. When talking about the two crypto companies, FTX and Alameda, filing for bankruptcy, she said she, quote, felt a sense of relief that I didn't have to lie anymore. And she said she'd been living in a constant state of dread before the collapse. She also said Bankman Fried was aware that his hedge fund, Alameda, was siphoning billions of dollars in customer money from his crypto exchange, FTX. He has pleaded not guilty. Among some of the other things we heard, Bankman Fried at one point was trying to raise money from Saudi Arabia's Prince Mohammed Bin Salman, MBS, as he's also known, to backstop some of the losses. Alameda executives also paid a $150 million bribe to the Chinese government to unlock some accounts on a foreign crypto exchange. We did hear about a few SBF confrontations again, and one Ellison said that he blamed her for some of the financial mess that they were in to the point where she was crying again. We did hear about their shared personal writings in a Google Doc with each other. She said she was unhappy in their relationship, felt like an unequal partner as well. And then some awkward tension between these two in the courtroom. The defense today is going to get a chance to cross-examine Ellison. So it was fascinating to watch all of that. I'm so curious what you think is going to happen today in terms of what the cross-examination could even look like. They're going to try and poke holes in the story. I think this is the the big day for the defense, too. So she was the key witness, the star witness in all of this. Their defense from the beginning and what he has said publicly has really been to to shift some of the blame to other executives, including Caroline Ellison. So she ran the hedge fund. They said in opening statements, you were the CEO. How did you not know about about this? And that Sam was so busy doing things like TV appearances. He was doing conferences. He was was just the figurehead. He was a figurehead. That's their defense. That's been their defense. I knew nothing. That he was delegating to these other executives and that he was so busy doing other things that he he didn't know. Well, no, the fascinating part was, and it was true, throughout the, even what she said yesterday, she repeatedly would be asked, so who who transferred the money? Yeah. Or who wrote this document? Or, and she would always say, I wrote the document. Yeah. And I transferred the money. And I did this, and I did that, yep. and then they would follow with, did, and then she would try to say that he told me to do it, yes. or he directed me to do it, or something like that. Always- but in almost every instance, she was actually the principal actor that did, did that actually did the thing. Yep. That was, I mean, she sent the bribes, yes. interestingly. And she, the whole thing does, was sort of a fascinating... Is there anything to back up what she said that he was telling her to do it? Is there anything in the text? Is there anything in the documents that were shared so that show he was saying it? interesting part of this is that they did a lot of the communication through this encrypted messaging system called Signal. Signal. And, and everything so they disappeared. Set it auto-delete to one week. So a lot of the evidence of him directing her and other executives to do these things has disappeared. It's oh, gone. Oh, well, he's pretty smart then. Yeah, so there's screenshots <laughs> of this. We should say she's also pleaded guilty. So this is part of a plea agreement. They've also, the defense has tried to talk to the jury and say, by the way, she's pleaded guilty. She's looking 
for a lesser sentence, and that's right. been also strategy. There are screenshots here. that show it before it disappeared? There are. There's a few screenshots that they've showed. They're not dated. And then the other thing, um, they've showed some of the internal documents and uh, said that these were updates that she gave to Sam Bankman-Fried as the CEO of the hedge fund. He owned 90% of it. She's sending him periodic updates right. saying, hey, here's the financial situation here. And they're clearly written and uh, right. they're saying that he sh she shared all of this with him so he would have known about it. But a lot of the evidence of those conversations, it's really based on her word because they don't exist anymore. The messages are gone. Kate Rooney, looking forward to hearing more about what happens today. Thank you. Cheese will be next. Coming up next, how is Hamas funded? And how much of their fundraising is done through crypto wallets? We're unpacking crypto's role in terror financing with federal prosecutor turned blockchain financial crime tracker, Ari Redboard. In 2021, there was violence in Israel and Gaza. We saw fundraising increase. We're likely to see that again here, but we're also likely to see a lot of successes because of the ability to track and trace funds on the blockchain. How crypto platforms like Binance work with U.S. and Israeli law enforcement to track donations to terrorist groups. That's right after this on Squawk Pod. NetCredit is here to say yes to a personal loan or line of credit when other lenders say no. Apply in minutes and get a decision as soon as the same day. Loans offered by NetCredit or lending partner banks and serviced by NetCredit. Application subject to review and approval. Learn more at netcredit.com slash partner. NetCredit. Credit to the people. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to Squawk Pod. Good morning and welcome back to Squawk Box right here on CNBC Live from the NASDAQ market side in Times Square. I'm Andrew Ross Sorkin along with Becky Quick. Joe is off today. We got so much going on, though. The Israel-Hamas war putting a spotlight on cryptocurrency. The Wall Street Journal reported earlier this week that Hamas, Hezbollah and Palestinian Islamic Jihad received large amounts of funding via crypto in the year that was leading up to last Saturday's attack on Israel. On Tuesday, Israeli police said that the country had frozen crypto accounts that were used to solicit donations for Hamas, with Binance assisting in the process. Joining us right now is our Ari Redboard, who is the head of legal and government affairs at TRM Labs. That's an organization that helps other organizations track crypto-related financial crime. Previously, he worked as an assistant U.S. attorney in Washington prosecuting terrorism threat finance and crypto cases. And Ari, this is something that we have been watching for a very long time, but this is a real life example. What do you know right now? What can you tell us about how much has been sent in financing to these terrorist organizations through crypto? First, uh, yeah, no, thank you so much for having me. I think it's important as we discuss sort of cryptocurrency and, and uh, terror financing, that it is a very small part of a much larger sort of terror financing puzzle. Uh, that involves networks of hawalas and money exchangers and and really state sponsors. Um, but look, crypto does play a role, uh, and Hamas was an early adopter. Uh, really, we saw in 2019 uh, Hamas start to solicit donations in Bitcoin. Uh, in 2020, uh, the U.S. Department of Justice actually uh, seized a number of websites and about 50, 150 cryptocurrency accounts 
uh, associated with Hamas that was Hamas was using uh, to raise funds. So on the one hand, we're seeing a lot of activity, um, fundraising activity uh, in crypto, but we're also seeing really uh, sophisticated efforts by U.S. law enforcement together with Israeli authorities to actually seize uh, cryptocurrency wallet addresses and ultimately the funds back. So a lot of success in this area as well. Yeah, that's what I would say. This is supposed to be something where the ledger tracks every single person. You would think in some ways it would eventually be easier to track down the criminals and the terrorists using that very ledger. What what prohibits you from doing it? Yeah, it's really well said. I was a federal prosecutor for a long time, as you mentioned, and I investigated cases involving networks of shell companies and hawalas and high-value art, right? There was no ability to trace and track those things on an open public ledger. And I think that's really what has allowed uh, successful investigations and ultimately prosecutions in the cryptocurrency space. And I think we'll continue to see that here. You know, I think the paradox is crypto allows uh, terrorist financiers and others to move larger amounts of funds faster across border than ever before. But at the same time, law enforcement using tools like TRM can now trace and track funds in real time, uh, something that we never could do in financial crime investigations before. Um, you know, in, in 2021, there was there was violence uh, in Israel and Gaza. Uh, we saw fundraising increase. Uh, we're likely to see that again here, but we're also likely to see a lot of successes because of the ability to track and trace funds on the blockchain. Just this week, Israeli authorities announced the seizure of cryptocurrency addresses associated with Hamas. Uh, you know, those are much longer, more complicated investigations if they're not on the blockchain. So I'd say sort of, look, I mean, I think there's a lot of ability of law enforcement and authorities to track and trace the flow of funds where, quite frankly, we lose visibility is the places we've always lost visibility, and that is off the blockchain. And I think we'll continue to have uh, challenges there, to be sure. But I think we're going to continue to see uh, Hamas and other organizations attempt to raise funds in crypto because they will attempt to raise funds in absolutely any way they can. But we're also going to see successes. Um, And I can tell you that Israeli authorities, the U.S. government, our partners uh, that we work with around the world are laser focused on this issue right now. What, what would you say you've seen in the last several days just in terms of fundraising and what can you do about it? Do you go after the, the terrorist organizations receiving those funds? Do you go after the people who are providing the funds? Yeah, no, absolutely. Look, I think what we've seen is a number of different uh, organizations that are attempting to raise funds in support of Hamas. And quite frankly, what we do at TRM, we have a team of threat hunters who are out there identifying cryptocurrency addresses associated with these types of fundraising. Um, And then we build out uh, in in our tool uh, addresses that are associated with those that allows law enforcement, that allows, uh, you know, FBI, uh, Israeli authorities and others to track and trace. So what we're doing is we're out there looking for addresses wherever we can that are being used to raise funds Uh, for Hamas, and we're sharing that information with law enforcement and helping them build investigations to ensure that we can, A, seize those those addresses, but then take down the infrastructure, right? There are websites that are being used to raise funds. There are social media platforms, telegram channels. Uh, So really working in every possible way to take down the infrastructure uh, that terrorists are using to raise funds right now. Binance gave a comment to CNBC through email. It says, Binance actively partners with global law enforcement agencies and regulators united in the mission to combat terror financing. They say they use the data to pinpoint individuals, addressers, and beyond. I guess my question is, how helpful have Binance and other exchanges been? How helpful have any of the social media companies been just in terms of trying to take down any of these efforts once they're identified? 
look, you know, the overwhelming majority of sort of cryptocurrency exchanges, particularly the ones that everyone's heard of, uh, you know, in the in the U.S. that, that or, or work with U.S. customers are very compliant. They use tools like TRM. We work with most of the large exchanges in the space and they are doing compliance. They have t- robust compliance teams. And part of compliance is responding to subpoenas from law enforcement, responding to requests for information. And I think the example uh, and this isn't the first time we see this example where Binance has worked closely with uh, authorities. We saw a case really just a couple of weeks ago uh, where Binance had worked with uh, law enforcement authorities to, to help take down a network. Look, I think the problem is that this is happening in the first place, right, that these uh, terror financiers are able to engage with exchanges. But exchanges are getting better and better, and their compliance teams and the tools they use are becoming more sophisticated. But I do think that it's really critical to ensure that we have a highly regulated system when we're talking about those on and off ramps, right? You know, it's one thing to raise funds in crypto. It's another to be able to use them to buy weapons, to off-ramp those funds. And that's really where we need to ensure that regulation exists on those on and off-ramps or those exchanges. You said Hamas itself was the earliest terror organization to start adopting crypto. When did that happen? That's, that's, that's correct. I mean, we saw fundraising around 2019 or so, uh, you know, uh, really started with Hamas using Telegram channels. Uh, it grew to ultimately putting solicitations on their websites. Um, and, and, you know, and, and we've seen um, we've seen it continue. Um, I, I think as we move into a digital age, right, where where war, wars in part are fought on blockchains, we're going to see more and more of this type of activity. But I think the really unique qualities of blockchains, this ability to track and trace funds in real time uh, is is really the different dif- difference maker here. We can track and trace those funds in ways we could never before and seize them back. And we're seeing U.S. authorities do that. We're seeing Israeli authorities do that. Um, and, and, and I know that that will continue. Ari, I want to thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you so much for having me. Coming up next on Squawk Pod, why the chairman of UPenn's Wharton School is pushing back against the university and encouraging other benefactors to do the same. Apollo CEO Mark Rowan. The university, by the way, has found its voice every time it has wanted to. Unfortunately, with respect to Jews, And the best we can do, lacking moral clarity at the university, is to say, we stand for free speech? Really? The moral and political duties of American schools and what's at stake for the University of Pennsylvania. I think this is a very, very dangerous exercise for this university. I think it's a very dangerous exercise for leadership. I think the fundraising impact of this will be overwhelming. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Welcome back to Squawk Pod from CNBC, where Andrew Ross Sorkin and Becky Quick are digging into the various responses from companies and from universities to the Israel-Hamas war. Here's Andrew. The Israel-Hamas war bringing new attention to the rise of anti-Semitism on college campuses. It's been a debate all over the country. Apollo Global CEO Mark Rowan 
urging alumni at that University of Pennsylvania, his alma mater, to halt donations to the school until its president and the chair of its board of trustees resign. In an op-ed that Rowan wrote and submitted to Penn's student news- newspaper, but which has not been published, Rowan criticizes university president Liz McGill and board of trustees chair Scott Bach, who I should also mention is the chairman and CEO of Greenhill, a Wall Street firm, uh, over a Palestinian literary festival held last month. Ostensibly about arts and culture, Rowan saying the gathering featured well-known anti-Semites and fomenters of hate and racism. Ahead of the festival, McGill and two other leaders at the university released a statement in which they said they unequivocally condemn anti-Semitism, but also support the free exchange of ideas, even those incompatible with our institutional values. But in his op-ed, Rowan says, in our viral online world, it's especially dangerous when once fringe ideologies receive a stamp of legitimacy and a cultural justification that allows hate-filled ideas to spread as acceptable alternatives. Mark Rowan joins us this morning at thank, the table. Thank you Good for having for me. Being here. Um, uh, by the way, a difficult call for a place that I love for the last 40 years. Well, you, this is your alma mater. So let's, let's just talk about how this came about, what was going through your head, uh, what kind of conversations you've had that led you to write this. Look, this is not, at the end of the day, about free speech. Because I, whether people like it or not, uh, me personally and most people support free speech. There are always going to be racists and haters. This is about a university condoned conference, university professors, universities supported, and the inability of leadership to exercise any sort of moral clarity with respect to saying, this is hate, this is anti-Semitism, this is racism, but we're going to allow it. That condemnation should not be so hard. Unfortunately, if you lack moral courage, it is hard. So this festival took place, I believe, three weeks ago now, three or four weeks ago. A little less. Uh, Before um, the the terrible and and disgraceful attacks that took place uh, on Israel by Hamas. What were you thinking then and about going public then? And were there conversations you were having then? And and how did that change over the past week? Look, there has been a gathering storm. Um, around these issues. Um, you know, microaggressions are condemned with extreme moral outrage, and yet violence, particularly violence against Jews, uh, anti-Semitism, seems to have found a place of tolerance on the campus uh, protected by free speech. Uh, President McGill is not an anti-Semite. President McGill is just not capable of exercising moral leadership here because she feels academic pressure, peer pressure. And it's unfortunately the environment we live in in campus Uh, Over the past two weeks, uh, more than 4,000 of our alumni, many of our leaders, many of our trustees, many of our board members have kind of finally said we've we've had enough uh, and signed an open letter basically telling President McGill that she was heading in the wrong direction. What's happened since has just been, excuse me, a a compounding of mistakes. Um, You know, imagine telling a group of firefighters a week after 9-11 that you're sorry for their loss and then adding the word but as if you're going to explain the action of the terrorists. That's kind of what's happened on our campus. Um, And at the same time, while protecting free speech, uh, President McGill, Chairman Bach, have come selectively after trustees and leaders of boards, asking them to resign for exactly exercising their free speech. Speak to this. What what, what have they done? Speak to this. They're asking asking trustees to step off the board. Oh, absolutely. For for what? To silence them. To silence them. That's exactly what's going on. They, they, I was strongly encouraged to reconsider my chairmanship of the Wharton board, to which I told them, no thanks. 
And by the way, the other three trustees of the university said exactly the same thing. So imagine in this moment of, you know, kind of moral preaching where people are talking about free speech and the exercise of free speech. In the background, there are three trustees and one chairman in my instance who are being asked to step off the board, all of whom signed this open letter disagreeing with what the university is doing and all four of us right. Jewish. Have you had a conversation with Scott Bach? That, that was what I did just before I came here. And, and what, we, we've agreed to disagree. And, and we, we've, we've seen the statement that, that, that Penn put out, not recently, but or, or in relation to your, uh, your op-ed, but in relation to the festival itself. Has there been any change in position at all? Um, a abs absolutely none. Look, this is um, leadership. Uh, I am CEO of a public company. Um, President McGill is essentially the leader of a university. Uh, for my mind, leadership is about having some point of view, being able to exercise moral coverage, but also the symbols of leadership. Symbols are really important. So this weekend, while 1,200 Israelis were being butchered and murdered and raped, we tweeted as a university about Indigenous Peoples Day. President McGill was posting Instagrams of she and her dog out in the rain. The, the lack of ability to actually understand what the community was going through and the environment in which, it's not her fault, the environment in which she preside, presides is actually quite toxic. Let, let's just broaden this out for a second because this is also happening at Harvard. Um, you're seeing by Larry Summers and Bill Ackman who've made a whole number of comments about uh, some of the statements that were made by some groups at Harvard as it relates to this and, and other universities as well. What do you think is happening on campus and what do you think the, the pressures are or, or aren't on leadership as it relates to this specific issue? Look, um, universities at the end of the day, we think of as bastions of free speech. That's in theory how they hold themselves out. The reality is not the case. We are at Penn, a bastion of preferred speech. Uh, imagine in the wake of George Floyd, a group of professors getting together and deciding that this would be a good night to hold a white nationalist rally. My guess is the university would, would have found its voice, as the university, by the way, has found its voice every time it has wanted to. Unfortunately, with respect to Jews, with respect to anti-Semites, we're not talking about arguments over a two-state solution or the political division of land. We're talking about Hamas. We're talking about terrorists. We're talking about a Penn professor outsourcing this conference to a known anti-Semite who then does exactly what we expect them to do. They call for ethnic cleansing. They call for rounding Jews into cantons. Right. They sanction violence. And the best we can do lacking moral clarity at the university is to say, we stand for free speech? Martin, really? W when did they ask you to step down? Was this a result saying, if you don't like what we're doing, leave? It's not, again, this, this is uh, subtlety. So the three trustees, they've actually, they actually asked to step off the board for publicly, publicly disagreeing, going around the process, which itself is another issue. Mine, mine was more subtle. Really encourage, can you continue to do the job? It is, again, a sign of the moral confusion. Right. Well, let me ask you, um, you are probably one of the wealthiest and uh, bigger benefactors uh, to this university. I imagine there are others that you have spoken to that are now saying, I don't know if we should be giving our money uh, to this university. You're, you're, you've been telling people quite publicly, do not give, give money to this university. You're now also the chair of, uh, of, of, of Warden. So how are you thinking about those issues? And what, how do you think the pressure is being brought to bear and what's gonna ultimately happen? 
Uh, well, it remains to be seen what ultimately happened. But what I will say is um, this has tapped into a nerve. Whatever people's dissatisfaction with how universities, in particular the University of Pennsylvania, is being run, this just has made it boiled over. We already have seen 150 million that would have come to the university move away from the university. We've seen more than 4,000 of our most engaged alumni basically say the university's heading in the wrong direction. Yesterday, my email and text blew up with people sending me photocopies of a $1 check to the University of Pennsylvania. Sometimes when people don't give to the university, the university can misunderstand it. Maybe we forgot. Right. By sending them a dollar, they're sending the university a very important message. And trustees are really faced with a, a very difficult choice. This is not, President McGill didn't create this problem. The question is, is she the right person to manage this problem? And most of us do not think that. Is there anything she could do to change your mind? I don't believe so. Let me ask you a, a slightly different question, which is um, you're speaking out quite publicly on this very issue. Um, one of the things we've seen even over the last year or two is CEOs who actually had spoken out publicly after George Floyd and so many other issues decided they wanted to sort of take a step back from making public comments about anything, uh, frankly, out of fear uh, that they were saying the wrong thing or that they would be attacked as being woke or anti-woke or that, you know, uh, so the various governors of different states were going to come after them or come even after their pension money, which goes into exactly. how just tell us about your thought process about this particular issue, how it relates from this issue to potentially other issues. I think there's a lot of people who in some cases would like to say certain things about about what's happening now who aren't. That's that's kind of the punchline. If I tell you yesterday was an overwhelmingly positive day from our employees, from our partners, from our limited partners, from the people we, we do business with, from people I don't know who literally just said, thank you. Thank you for speaking out. And of course, my response to them is feel free to join. This is not an issue of woke or anti-woke. This is an issue of right or wrong. This is a group, Hamas, that believes that the Jews should be killed. Read the charter. Behind every rock, you shall seek out the Jews and kill them. This is what we're talking about. This is not about a political solution or disagreements over how Israel has treated Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza. This is a group that is a terrorist group. The inability to actually say that is morally confused and bankrupt. And some have gotten it right. Look at the president of the University of Florida. Has gotten it exactly right. Actually said the truth. What would, I don't what basically call these are terrorists. This is not a political discussion. This is right and wrong and moral clarity. We'll discuss the politics of Israel and the Palestinians another day, but there's no room here. And so for me, I felt very comfortably comfortable right. speaking out because it's it's morally clear. You said that this has been a long time coming. Is it just on this issue or have you felt that there have been other areas, UPenn and other universities, where you see things that you don't like, things that you think are astray. Look, we, we have a, a climate of fear at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, the other really clarifying thing over the past few weeks is tenured professors, department heads, senior administrators reaching out and basically saying, go Mark. And of course, they're reaching out from their private Gmails or their private cell phones because they are afraid of being canceled. They're afraid of being ostracized. They're afraid of speaking out. 
we as a university are diverse in almost every way except for political ideology. And that creates a dangerous echo chamber in which right. thoughts like this and morally repugnant acts are, fail to be condemned because we've created space for them. Again, we're very good at targeting micro, microaggressions, but somehow we can't summon the courage to condemn murder and violence and call it what it is. And that's essentially what's happened here. Two weeks ago or three weeks ago, um, we had this festival. A university professor outsourced this, professor, prof this festival to a known anti-Semite. This was not a question. This is someone who speaks every day on, in an anti-Semitic tone and ferments hate. The university allowed it to proceed. The university funded it. The university supported it. The university hosted it. Okay, if we're a laboratory of free speech, let that take place, but summon the moral courage to say, this is hate, this is anti-Semitism, this is calling for violence, it's repugnant to our values, but as a protector of free speech, we're gonna let this go forward. And they wouldn't do that? They're unable. If you lack a kind of moral foundation, if everything is relative, if you're talking about the events of 9-11, but you need to say the word but, or if you're talking about the slaying of 1,200 people, but then you need to say and or but, you lack a certain moral clarity. At the end of the day, I think this is a very, very dangerous exercise for this university. I think it's a very dangerous exercise for leadership. Uh, I think the fundraising impact of this will be overwhelming. Well, that's what I was going to ask. Overwhelming. What, I mean, we're, we're, we, are, we are on a business network. What do you think the economic impact is going to be on Penn specifically? What do you think the economic impact could be on a Harvard, for example, Look, that's I, dealing I, with these issues? Uh, I, I'll stick close to home, the place okay. that I've loved and supported for 40 years. Um, and this, again, it doesn't come easy. This is a place I showed up to without money and they took care of me. It's a place where my father died while I was a student and they took care of me. It's a place where I graduated without paying my tuition and they allowed that. So I have a lot of reasons to want to give back. I've chaired the board here for the Wharton School for a long time. I've been an engaged alumni. We're just heading in the wrong direction. And trustees have a choice. We can double down and continue to do things that are not working, or we can actually stop and say, we made a mistake, and we need to provide some guidance to leadership. Do we want to be a place of objective research? Do we want to be a place of free speech? Do we want to be a place of moral clarity? These are questions trustees have never been asked. We don't have the governance mechanism in place and have not had it historically to actually do this, and the trying to dismiss trustees or pressure them to resign, for me, actually was the last straw. Anyone who believes in free speech should be outraged by what's happened here. Mark Rowan, uh, we appreciate you joining us this morning um, on what is a very hot topic of the moment. Uh, we do hope to have you back and uh, have opportunity to actually talk more about the economy as well. We'll do that <laughs> next time. We do I'm that sure. as well. I'm sure we'll do that. Thank you. Thank you. That's the podcast for today. Thank you for listening. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Orkin. Weekday mornings on CNBC starting at 6 a.m. Eastern. To get the best takes and conversations from our TV broadcast right into your ears, follow us here on Squawk Pod wherever you're listening now. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. And we are clear. Thanks, guys. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. 
like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.